You're going to love this. Just love it. I don't know. I don't know if they will. No, I think they will. I don't know. Nah, they will. Well, we'll see. Stuck in the middle with you from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast. 93 FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Coast to coast and around the globe via KPFK.org. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, other fine affiliates in parts unknown, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Welcome to the world-famous broadcast. Delighted to have you here. Why? Well, because we just like you, but also because it's Election Day. Yes, it's, uh, it's that day that uh, we talk about on this program all year long, it seems like. And not just the horse race, of course, but we talk about the track conditions and the problems uh, on on that uh, track that make it so difficult for some horses to win and uh, others to lose. Oh, boy. Well, we're going to talk about uh, a lot of concerns about Election Day today momentarily and some problems at polling places around the country where voters are being disenfranchised once again. What? Uh, yes, I know. What a shock. You'd never thought it would happen. Uh, that electronic voting systems and electronic poll books are once again uh, bastardizing the electoral results that everyone will be reporting on for the next few days. Maybe because, you know, it's not a big election day. It's not the presidential election, but there are uh, elections going on in a whole bunch of states around the country. We'll get to that in a moment. Also, uh, Desi Doyen. Uh, hi, Des. Hello. Happy Election Day to you. <laughs> Thanks, you too. <laughs> uh, Desi Doyen is, of course, our producer and my co-host on the Green News Report and the managing editor. I just want to say you are the managing editor of the Green News Report. Yes. And I say that not just by way of complimenting you, but also by way of noting that if we get anything wrong, it's totally your fault, not yes, mine. Yes, 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 it is. It's all, all right. my fault. Write to me. You're welcome. Green News at bradblog.com with your complaints. There and you your go. compliments if, if you have any. No, there <laughs> won't be any any uh, any compliments. Uh, there, But we have a big, a very big a Green News report coming up a little bit later today, even though it's Election Day. Uh, among Amongst the things we will be covering, the first ever hurricane for the nation of Yemen. <sighs> yeah, that's not weird at all. No, now we're getting uh, hurricanes in the Middle East. Awesome. Uh, Hillary Clinton comes out in support of uh, investigating Exxon. 
record warm oceans, yada, yada, yada. Oh, stuff happening, you know. But most importantly, it looks like TransCanada, the owner of the Keystone XL pipeline, has, at least for now, called it quits on the Keystone XL pipeline. They've given up. They've thrown in the towel. They've... Uh, we'll see yeah we'll see we'll see if they do <laughs> but for now uh they did uh and and uh congratulations out there to all of you uh activists who have been fighting against the keystone xl this is actually quite a huge victory so we'll get to that a little bit later in the meantime it is election day uh around the country two states have gubernatorial races uh, in Miss, uh, mississippi and kentucky uh, a couple more will be holding state legislative elections like New Jersey, Virginia. Pennsylvania is electing three Supreme Court justices. Why Supreme Court justices are ever elected at all, I couldn't tell you. And we will be talking about exactly that in a few minutes with my guest Scott Graytack of JusticeAtStake.org. Uh, so that's in Pennsylvania. Also, uh, countless cities around the country are electing mayors like uh, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Houston. A handful of states are going to be voting on ballot measures on a variety of issues, including marijuana. For example, in Ohio. Hello, Ohio. Taxes uh, and transportation, bond issues for all sorts of development around the country. For example, uh, almost a billion dollars is at stake on the ballot in Tucson, Arizona, as we discussed on this program yesterday with my guest John Brakey, a great election integrity advocate who also happened to catch an election official from Pima County, Arizona's, uh, that's uh, Tucson, Pima County's uh, election office, breaking into the tabulator, breaking in to the electronic tabulator at the uh, at the election headquarters, caught him on videotape. If you missed that program, uh, of course, finish listening to this excellent one and then make haste going over to bradblog.com or over to iTunes and uh, downloading yesterday's uh, show. Because uh, this was something, you know, this got caught. But how often does something like this happen around the country that does not get caught? It is, after all, election insiders who have the most uh, direct uh, line of attack, I guess, if you want to call it that, to electronic voting systems. Uh, which is why, you know, we always say, you know, it, it, election officials always feel like they're being attacked when we bring this up. And it's not a matter of, of attacking them. It's a matter of saying that, yes, they have insiders. And this is true not just in electronic voting systems. This is true for any type of electronic system, computer system. Uh, remember that lottery story we did some months ago, Desi Doyen, about that guy who ran this uh, the, the lottery, the computer, the random number generator for the uh, for a lottery? I think it was up in Iowa, and they have this computer system in a glass room with cameras, with cameras, twenty four seven. And he figured out in a uh, Ocean's Eleven type break in uh, how to get in there and uh, scam the machine and win the lottery. And again, it was because he was an insider. Insiders have the best access to gaming the system if they want to. And of course, most of them don't want to. But we, the people, need to know that they didn't. Anyway, 
go check out that uh, break-in where they did actually illegally remove the security seals off of a, uh, a, a uh, the electronic, the new electronic tabulator they are using today to determine whether $800 million in uh, money gets borrowed by uh, Pima County, Tucson, uh, in, in today's election. Uh, anyway, uh, also, let's see, Seattle and Maine, they're considering laws that would create greater public financing of elections. Oh, there's an idea. In the meantime, as we, uh, as I said, uh, the world-famous broadcast, we are world-famous for our coverage of electoral dysfunction, electile dysfunction over uh, at least the past decade, uh, particularly on Election Day with uh, problems with electronic voting systems that are routinely marginalized frankly, by election officials and media alike as little more than glitches, hiccups, snags, and snafus. You can, uh, you can usually do a search on, uh, on Election Day, a Google search on Election Day or, or the night or the days after looking for glitches, hiccups, snags, and snafus, and you will find them. And I should note, these are not glitches, hiccups, snags, and snafus when they occur on Election Day. They are failures, out-and-out out failures. Oh, look, here's one. Headline, Prince William Today. Glitch causes some voting delays in Prince William, Virginia. Uh, about one-third of Prince, William's, uh, Prince William County polling places were reporting glitches with their electronic poll books on Tuesday morning. The problem was with computers that keep track of who comes to vote, prompting some voting delays. Some voting delays this morning. Prince William County Registrar Michelle White said the problem prompted a small group of voters to leave a polling place at Leesylvania Lee's, Lee's, Elementary School, uh, just as polls were supposed to open at 6 a.m. Uh, the election chief told voters the equipment wasn't working and that he needed a few more minutes before opening. Some of them chose to walk away. They weren't turned away. Registrar White uh, takes pains to note. Of course, they chose to walk away. Because they had to go to work. Because they couldn't wait for your crappy electronic poll book. These are these new things that uh, counties are now using. Instead of, you know, signing your name into the book, onto the piece of paper, now you've got to use an electronic piece of equipment to sign in in many places around the country. And, and if it doesn't boot up, well, oh well. Yeah, oh well. I guess you don't get to vote right now. Hope you can wait. Polling places are not using paper poll books as a backup in Virginia. That is amazing to me. Uh, but uh, they said that the voters' arrivals will be recorded in at least one computer once they get it fixed. Voting officials were still working uh, this morning uh, to try to get it fixed and will uh, likely have to further explore the problem after the election to prevent future sinking problems. Uh, that was just one of the places where they were having problems with electronic poll books. There were others. Uh, but you notice they call that a glitch, a glitch that actually costs uh, voters votes, costs voters the ability to cast their vote. Um, and I wonder how much those electronic poll books cost. Millions, the millions. Oh, wait till we get to the Ohio story. But uh, concerning exactly that. But I just wanted to point that out. Uh, that you'll see them marginalized as glitches, hiccups, 
snags and snafus, but in fact, they are failures. They are failures. When a voter goes to vote, when a voter takes the trouble to vote, when a voter takes the trouble to get up early, to go 6 a.m. in some of these places to cast their vote before they go to work, because insanely, it's not a, a holiday in this country. Election day is not a holiday. And then they are turned away. They don't even get to vote. Uh, all right. Well, here, let me just get to some of these other uh, electronic poll book problems um, in Houston, Houston, Texas. A loose wire is to blame for a voting mishap. It's just a mishap, a mishap at one location. An isolated incident. That's right. Not like this happens all over the country or anything. According to NBC affiliate uh, in uh, Houston, the Channel 2 there, uh, some voters waited over an hour before they were allowed to cast a ballot. At one point, the line at Grace Evangelical Lutheran Church on Wow, 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 Wow Drive stretched out the door, filled with voters who were not allowed to vote. It was ridiculous. An hour and a half to get the polls open, said Brenda Lamone. Uh, she uh, apparently is a voter there. A machine used to confirm voters' registration would not work. Voters whose last name began with letters L through Z were assigned that machine and had to wait until the machine was fixed. Brilliant plan. Nonetheless, uh, they could have used the same machine. As it turns out, all the machines have the same information. So the uh, people who were waiting in line for hours to vote, uh, who had many of whom had to uh, go home, go leave, go to work. Uh, they could have just used the other machine, but they had them separated A, A through what comes before L. Uh, K. K. And then L through Z for the others. So those people had to wait because the electronic system that only needs to work pretty much one day a year did not work. And voters were again disenfranchised. But buckle up. Ohio in Cincinnati. Voters in Hamilton County turned angry on Tuesday morning as they experienced the number of problems at various polling places around the county. Hamilton is just the, uh, one of 12 that are now using new electronic poll books uh, in Tuesday's general election that were touted by Republican Ohio Secretary of State John Husted as a way to streamline the voting process. One voter from Springfield uh, Township uh, told 700 WLW News he votes in every election, but the new system showed him as not being registered. That's right. Somehow he fell off the poll books. The poll, re the poll workers let him cast a provisional ballot. How thoughtful. But other voters have said they are experiencing the same problem. Another voter says he and others at his polling place in Mount Healthy didn't get to vote at all because poll workers didn't have provisional ballots on hand. There were also reported problems with poll workers having a difficult time using the new system, which added to already long wait times on Tuesday morning. One voter reported waiting up to an hour and a half to vote. Several voters reported um, that they left their polling place without voting and are unable to return to the polls today. Uh, about a uh, let's see, one Hyde Park vote, uh, one Hyde Park voter said he arrived just as the polls opened, only to still be waiting to vote at 7:45 and then had to leave to work. About a dozen people, including myself, left without voting. That voter uh, uh, told uh, WLW. 
Another voter said he and his wife waited patiently for over an hour while workers tried to repair a faulty e-book, e-poll book, I should say. Both were unable to remain waiting and not issued, for some reason, not issued provisional ballots. The state spent, you had asked Desi how much they spent, $12.7 million to help counties pay for the new e-poll books. And that doesn't include the money that the counties contributed to the new system on their own. John Husted, Secretary of State, replied on Twitter, the one who had been pushing for these poll books, mind you, he replied on Twitter that, oh, he's aware and he's trying to help out with the problems. Just another hiccup, just another glitch. And that was in Ohio on a light polling day. That was in the swing state of Ohio, not during a presidential election. What will happen next year in 2016? I don't know. But buckle up, Buckeye State. And those are, uh, you know, what happened today for people who were able to vote. And as I have pointed out many times, problems usually come to light, come to surface well after Election Day. Long, sometimes days, weeks, months, sometimes years after Election Day. So we'll see what happens as the week goes on. In the meantime... Pennsylvania has now logged the costliest Supreme Court race in history. Uh, this is according to a, uh, a, a release just out today from uh, Brennan Center for Justice, Pennsylvanians for Modern Courts and Justice at Stake. Total documented spending in the Supreme Court race where they will be electing for some reason three new justices. Total documented spending in the race has now reached uh, almost $16 million. And, of course, all the totals are not yet in. Uh, This has been uh, documented in a new report that we will be talking about in a moment. Uh, Liz Seaton, interim uh, executive director at Justice at Stake, says that everyone should be stunned that a national spending record for state judicial elections has now fallen. The problem is growing, and Pennsylvanians deserve a better system for selecting their high court judges. Matt Menendez of Brennan Center said that more troubling is that this unacceptable level of politicization is becoming the norm for judicial elections rather than the exception. Something, he says, has to change. And Lynn Marks, executive director of Pennsylvanians from Modern Courts, says expensive attack ads against judges bought and sold by special interest groups are no way to pick judges. Well, think again. That's how we do it now, and that's what we're going to talk about after this quick break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast, your democracy headquarters. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. 
Yeah, unfortunately, that's too true. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Glad you're uh, joining us today. Uh, recently, we spoke with Brendan Fisher of the Center for Media and Democracy up in Wisconsin about a about a bunch of reforms being pushed through the Wisconsin State House by Republicans uh, and the state's Republican governor, uh, Scott Walker. These so-called reforms come on the heels of a long-standing criminal investigation into legal, illegal coordination, I should say, illegal or what used to be illegal coordination between right-wing, uh, coke-funded political uh, operative groups and the Scott Walker recall campaign back in 2012. Were they illegally coordinating uh, the campaigns and these special interest groups. Now, the investigation had been going on for a long time. It was the uh, it was the second such investigation into Scott Walker and his uh, his cronies there. The first one resulted in the convictions of six top Scott Walker aides and allies for campaign related crimes. And in this second investigation, Scott Walker and the Republicans uh, and and the groups that were allied with Scott Walker, they decided to fight back. They described the criminal investigation as a partisan witch hunt, even though it was approved and headed up by uh, a Republican judge and Republican prosecutors and by challenging in court subpoenas of those groups who were uh, supportive of Scott Walker in his uh, contested recall election back in 2012. Eventually, the case of these largely Koch brothers funded uh, organizations made its way up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The majority of justices on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, where justices are elected rather than appointed, agreed with the Koch brothers funded groups and they ordered the prosecutors to end their investigation against Scott Walker's Koch brothers funded uh, crony groups. The problem was, of course, that those elected Supreme Court justices in Wisconsin are funded by the exact same groups that were being investigated because, again, they are up for elections uh, in, in Wisconsin. The Supreme Court justices are uh, and they're allowed to take money from outside special interest groups. And so you have. The Wisconsin Supreme Court justices making decisions about these groups who they are actually funded by. So was their decision fair and impartial or do those who are questioning the decision of the Wisconsin Supreme Court and the decision of several of the justices to not recuse themselves in this case, do they have a good point? And why, I should add, are members of the judiciary uh, at all subject to elections like this in any way, at least where their campaigns are now allowed to be flooded with money from corporations and special interest groups? Isn't that alone a grave threat to confidence in our judiciary system? Well, now uh, special interest groups have been found uh, to have given a record high 29 percent of total spending in state judicial races in the 2013-2014 election cycle, according to a new report by the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Uh, actually, by three groups, NY, uh, Brennan Center for Justice, Justice at Stake and the National Institute on Money in State Politics. Their new report is uh, titled Bankrolling the Bench, the New Politics of Judicial Elections, 
2013 and 2014, and it shows how special interest spending has impacted the composition of state courts nationwide, and it calls into question how campaign spending may affect courts' decisions. Decisions like the one that took place up in Wisconsin recently. The study finds that multi-million dollar judicial races, which were once unheard of, are now common across the country. Social welfare organizations and other outside groups are also increasingly spending on court races, spurred in part by the U.S. Supreme Court's Citizens United ruling in 2010. And much of that, by the way, was at the heart of the case up in Wisconsin, where they said, hey, uh, Supreme Court uh, Citizens United ruling said that uh, we can spend as much as we want under these uh, under this in this new world. And of course, the Wisconsin Supreme Court agreed the Wisconsin Supreme Court that was funded by those same groups who got that positive decision. The Brennan Center for Justice goes on to note that uh, over this 2013-2014 uh, cycle, there was a notable development in a highly public initiative by a national group, the Republican State Leadership Committee, to spend nearly $3.4 million across judicial races in five states. So there was a total of more than $34.5 million spent on state Supreme Court elections in a total of just 19 states. Much of that money came from special interests. Outside spending by uh, interest groups in judicial races rose to a record 29% of total spending in these campaigns in uh, 2013 and 2014. But when outside spending by political parties was also included, total outside dollars accounted for 40% of total judicial election spending. That is a record for a non-presidential election cycle, and those numbers are going, unfortunately, nowhere but up. Here to talk about this uh, this new report, Bankrolling the Bench, is Scott Graytack. He is the uh, lead co-author of the new report. Scott works with the Policy Council and Research Analyst Group Justice at Stake, a nonpartisan national partnership of more than 50 organizations focused on keeping the U.S. court system fair and impartial by keeping politics and special interests out of the courtroom. Yeah, good luck with that, Scott. Uh, the, he also worked uh, previously at Ohio uh, Public Defender's Office and the American Civil Liberties Union of Ohio. He serves as the vice chair of events for the American Constitution Society's D.C. Lawyers Chapter. Scott Graytack, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Good to talk to you, Brad. Thanks for having me. Uh, good to talk to you, too, as well, Scott. Uh, your, your co-author on this new report, Alicia Bannon, uh, she's uh, the senior counsel at the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center, says, as special interest groups continue to pump money into judicial races, Americans are rightly questioning whether campaign cash influences, uh, campaign cash influences courtroom decisions. Now, I've never understood why are state judges even on the ballot at all? Shouldn't state judges and state Supreme Court justices be accountable to the rule of law, not the whims of the electorate, particularly now with the electorate so propagandized by political ads from, you know, wealthy corporations and special interests. Why are we electing these officials at all as opposed to uh, appointing them? Yeah, it's a real head scratcher, Brad. I think The New York Times called the Wisconsin decision that you've been talking about pretty straightforward in the fact that the four justices who had received so many millions of dollars uh, had been spent in support of their campaign should have recused themselves from that case entirely. 
you know, this is something that's unfortunately unique to America. It's really the United States and one other country in the world that decides to elect their judges. It was really a populist impulse that took place about 100 years ago when folks are trying to break up big machine politics, trying mm-hmm. to attack corruption. Around the same time we started directly electing our senators, uh, some states thought it was also a good idea to start directly electing their state Supreme Court justices. So this takes place in about half of the uh, states in the country. Right now, about 38 states will have elections for their state Supreme Court members on some level. It's either traditional elections, partisan, nonpartisan elections, or retention elections, which typically used to be pretty low-key affairs until lately. That's where a judge goes up for election uh, for a yes-no vote. Uh, and they typically used to be in the 60s and 70s approval numbers. We've seen those dip closer to the mid 50s and low 50s as of late. And is that is, is that because is that because of campaigns that are uh, where it used to be sort of a no? People, you know, very rarely even notice it today. At least out here in California, you know, it'll maybe have a judge on the ballot, and it's yes or no. Should they stay? Um, they're not running against anybody in particular, but are these special interest groups now going out and rallying against those in those uh, retention yes-no elections and saying go vote no uh, against this particular judge, toss him out of office? That's exactly right. So what we, you know, the, the purpose of retention elections is, is to talk about the judge's performance according to the metrics that the judge was appointed. So the quality of their work, their reputation, their efficiency as a jurist, that sort of thing. Lately, they've become, in certain states, as they've been targeted by politicians, legislators, or special interest groups that are hoping to shape the bench, uh, they've been targeted as sort of a referenda on big decisions that the court has heard, or more often just opportunities for partisan groups to try and make political plays on these courts. And, and that has uh, an effect on the judiciary, does it not? I mean, if they know that, hey, if, if I decide in this certain way, uh, even though the rule of law, the Constitution, the state Constitution and so forth, uh, you know, requires me to decide in such and such a way, I could be out of a job. I could be out. Of, I mean, we saw that in um, was it Iowa where the uh, state Supreme Court uh, made a, a ruling on uh, on marriage equality on uh, uh, same sex marriage up there, and then there was a campaign that successfully threw out something like three justices. That's exactly right, and that really uh, it was a 2010 decision, the elect or 2009 decision, mm-hmm. I believe. The next time that the three judges who had affirmed the right to marriage equality came up for a retention election, Mm -hmm. uh, all three of them were swept out of office. And these were justices that felt, given how much new money was being poured into these sort of elections, that they didn't have to have a campaign in response, uh, that they didn't have to go out and fundraise and do the typical campaign activities of running TV ads and going out on the road. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's something that was so new to judicial retention elections that that really... Uh, brought this issue a lot of attention about five years ago. And, and so they would, uh, in, in a case like that, you've, where you've got people spending uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, to say no on Judge Smith, Judge Smith's choice is, well, I have to now go out and raise money and actually campaign uh, and and make promises to the people of the type of judge. I mean, this seems like a, a, a real mess. It seems like a real mess for a, a, a judicial election, but it also seems like it will have a, just a, a chilling, or that it has a chilling effect across the board for judges 
who can no longer simply look at the rule of law and, and, and decide a case, but also have to think, well, you know, am I going to be out of work? <laughs> am I going to be able to feed my wife and my family if I decide in one particular way or another on a case? You know, we have heard time and time again from judges that this is not the sort of role that they signed up for. Judges are not supposed to be politicians. This last year, in a decently high-profile U.S. Supreme Court case, Chief Justice John Roberts said flat out, judges are not politicians, even if they come to the bench by way of the ballot. So judges have more and more often become bit players in their own campaigns. When you have elections like some we saw this cycle in Illinois, there was a judge who was at a faced retention election where 90 percent of total spending in that race came from outside organizations. That means one out of ten dollars came from the candidate himself or his, his campaign. Mm-hmm. These judges have really been put on a back burner uh, for special interest groups and political parties who are making these, issues, making these opportunities to relitigate cases and to politicize issues that have gone before the court. I want to get into some of the key findings of your new report, but it's something that has driven me crazy here for a while, and I realize that may be a short drive, but I want to get your thoughts on this, Uh, you know, because when we look at uh, the Wisconsin case that I mentioned in the introduction here, um, conflicts of interest, uh, they are not necessarily about actual conflicts of interest. They are about the appearance of conflicts of interest. In other words, uh, the Wisconsin Supreme Court and their ruling they made may be uh, a, a perfect ruling, perfectly in line with the law, the state constitution, the federal constitution, and everything else. But when you have the appearance of conflict of interest, when you have judges, uh, justices in this case, on, the, on the, uh, the high court up there in Wisconsin who are funded by these very same groups, even if the justices make their decision based on the rule of law, the appearance of conflict of interest is such that people can question their ruling. And they're supposed to, as I understand it, judges are supposed to recuse themselves in those cases not because they have a conflict of interest necessarily, but when there is the appearance of conflict of interest. How, how, do, uh, how does the decision happen to recuse oneself uh, from these sorts of cases uh, take place? Is that generally left up to the judges themselves? Is that different uh, from state to state? Uh, this has always bothered me that they seem to say, uh, and even on the Supreme Court you see it, you have uh, Scalia going out, duck hunting with uh, Dick Cheney or whatever, and he says, well, I'm, I'm perfectly able to, to rule anyway in a case that uh, regards uh, Dick Cheney. What are the rules on this for not just conflict of interest, but the appearance of conflict of interest? Right. So, you know, to take a, a, a real 30,000-foot view on this, state Supreme Court's here about 90, or I should say state courts are mm-hmm. where about 95% of all cases are filed in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that's about 100 million cases a year. It touches on things all across the board, from criminal justice cases to environmental cases, labor rights, LGBT rights, you name it. So these are cases that here, cases that concern a lot of different organizations in a state, a lot of different business interests, a lot of different interests that are represented by different law firms. So there's a big opportunity for folks who have an interest in an election system where they can make contributions to try to influence the outcome of that election. So there's plenty of opportunities, like you mentioned, for conflict of interest. You know, unfortunately, the way that the states deal with this is pretty scattered. There are some states that have adopted more strict recusal rules where those decisions, first and foremost, are not made by the judge him or herself, which, as we know from 
know, recent psychological academic research, oftentimes judges aren't able to even identify their own implicit biases if they exist. Right. So there are some states that have taken the affirmative step of giving that, uh, you know, degree of um, influence to other judges on the court, uh, you know, to find ways that will uh, disqualify the judge immediately if there is found to be campaign contributions beyond a certain threshold. Mm-hmm. But it certainly hasn't been across the board. Uh, and to be honest, I don't think that it gets at the core uh, conflicts that are presented by an election system for judges in the first place. Mm. All right. Well, let's get. Uh, yeah, it, that has always. So it's basically left up to uh, the judges themselves to make that decision, uh, ultimately, in most of these states. Absolutely. And, you know, mm. it's, it's oftentimes not an objective test. It's not what folks on the outside would look at. It's, you know, it's determined by whether or not the judge. Of course, yeah, these are highly regarded civil servants. I mean, mm-hmm. these are folks who have, who have oftentimes had a lifetime of achievement, and, and they believe yeah. they can be fair and impartial, regardless of how it may appear because of the fact that elections have forced them to campaign and to raise money from folks who may come before that's them. The, that's the sort of the nub of that issue, that they feel they can be fair, and maybe they can be. But, uh, you know, if you if you make a decision that allows people that allows your opponents to be able to say, hey, you decided this way because you are funded by X, Y, Z, that alone, I think, is a is a threat to confidence in the system and is a threat to the judiciary, even in cases where the judge may be uh, perfectly fair and may have made a, a perfectly correct decision. That has always troubled me, and it, and it continues to. All right, uh, I'm speaking to uh, Scott Graytack of org about uh, their new report on bankrolling the bench and the, the flood of money that is now coming in from special interests into these uh, judicial elections. Uh, let's look at uh, some of your key findings here. The highest spenders overwhelmingly supported Republican and conservative candidates in these uh, in 2013 and 2014. That's correct. So about, you know, when it comes to these outside organizations, um, I think about 70 percent of uh, outside spending came from groups that supported conservative candidates or Republican candidates. That doesn't mean that there wasn't spending on the left. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has traditionally been a reflection of the tort wars. So it has been plaintiffs' attorneys uh, and business interests who have sort of had an arms race in these judicial elections, but we did see this cycle. We follow the data, and the mm-hmm. data showed us that when it came to national organizations spending big, uh, and when it came to special interest spending big, about 70% of that outside spending did come from groups that back conservative or Republican candidates. And, uh, and as you note, uh, two of the top three highest spenders in the election cycle supported a Democratic candidate. Uh, this was one in Michigan, or opposed a Republican candidate. That was one in Illinois. So... Uh, while it's not even the amount of money they're spending, and there certainly is a, a big move from the right to do this, this is a problem across the board. All right, the airwaves uh, around judicial elections were dominated by ads, many of them harsh, about criminal justice issues. Uh, your report finds that uh, tough on crime was the most common campaign theme. This seems to be ironic uh, at a time when now there's a real look at uh, our tough on crime policies over the last uh, several decades in this country. Um, are, are these special interests trying to uh, influence the uh, influence what happens at the bench? Are they at odds 
with uh, the political system and and I guess the rest of society, which is finally saying, oh, enough is enough on these tough on crime things. This is uh, crippling this country. Uh, is this giving too much influence to these special interest groups to make this case? I'll tell you, the, the conclusion, once we crunched the numbers and looked behind the spending, was actually more surprising than that. So there are, it was 56% of all ads that were run, TV ads that were run, had a criminal justice theme. It's the highest we've ever seen before. But the truth behind that is that the organizations that fund these ads, often, if not almost all the time, don't have any criminal justice policy preferences. They're not even working in the criminal justice space. Their business interests who have come to find that criminal justice is an emotional issue that may resonate with voters that could perhaps move the needle at the ballot box. And so they're using this messaging because they believe that it's effective in order to try and get their other policy preferences, their business goals, perhaps that may come from the court. That's the way that they're hoping to influence the election is just through the criminal justice lens. So I see. So these are uh, companies, groups, uh, who who want who like a particular judge for any particular reason, or I guess maybe hate the judge for any particular reason, but uh, who who may like a judge uh, because they're going to uh, p- positively support them in some case or in some interest, and then they're just using the old "Hey, he's tough on crime" uh, to say this is why we need to keep him. That's correct. So let's wow. look at North Carolina, which had a record-breaking election this last cycle. In North Carolina, one of the ugliest ads of the cycle was run against a judge named Robin Hudson. And this ad was paid for by a group called Justice for All North Carolina. Mm-hmm. It was funded primarily, about $1.3 million came from the Republican State Leadership Committee. Now, the RSLC, as they're called, uh, is backed by groups such, you know, energy groups, pharmaceutical, ener- uh, you know, large, big business organizations, Casinos, tobacco giants, uh, you know, these are, these are all companies that could have uh, cases in some form or another be affected by the North Carolina Supreme Court or the mm-hmm. regulatory system they approve or don't approve in their state, and yet they chose to use harsh negative ads around criminal justice issues to go after this justice. Wow. Uh, oh, man, how sleazy. Speaking of sleazy, uh, one more point I want to hit. Uh, one of the key findings from the report, lawyers and business interests spent big on judicial elections. So you've got uh, lawyers, you've got attorneys who, who are actually going to be themselves, lawyers and lobbyists uh, who are actually going to themselves be in front of many of these uh, these judges and uh, and the Supreme Court justices actually spending money to support the justices who are going to hear the case that they are going to argue. Yeah, it's deeply concerning. I mean, our data from this cycle found that about a third of all contributions to state Supreme Court judicial candidates came from lawyers and lobbyists. Another third came from business interests, which, of course, are going to have cases that come in front of these courts or have interests that come in front of these courts. So, you know, in many parts, the system has just created this grand set of conflicts of interest. I mean, when judges have to run for office, you know, the folks who are closest to the courts, who know what at stake, are often the lawyers and the lobbyists who operate in them and know the issues that work through the court system. So they turn and rely on the lawyers and lobbyists as a funding system. It becomes a reproducing cycle of conflicts of interest. And this is what judicial elections has left us with. Man. Uh, well, I end too many segments on this show by saying what a mess, but I think that uh, it qualifies here as well. Uh, check out this new report, Bankrolling the Bench, 
the new politics of judicial elections uh, over at newpoliticsreport.org. The report was put together uh, by the Brennan Center for Justice uh, and for uh, Justice at Stake. And uh, where's the other group? Uh, Followthemoney.org. Am I right on that? I've lost track of the three. That's right. The National Institute on Money and State Politics. There you go. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Uh, Scott Graytack of JusticeAtStake.org. Great to talk to you. I hope to do it again in the future because I suspect you'll be uh, continuing to look at this issue. Uh, Find uh, his work and their work at JusticeAtStake.org. Thank you so much, Scott. Great talking with you today. My pleasure, Brad. Okay, quick break, and we are back with some big news in our in our latest Green News report. Stay tuned. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com, melting for Desi Doyen and her latest Green News report. Des, uh, let's get right to it because we got some huge breaking news in today's report, uh, recorded a little bit earlier today, and I want to follow up with uh, a couple of questions for you afterwards. So let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. Unusually powerful tropical cyclone heading towards Yemen of all places. The first ever hurricane for the nation of Yemen. Yes, yes, they should. Hillary supports an investigation of Exxon. Record warm oceans blamed for the collapse of Maine's cod fishery. Plus, TransCanada calls time out on its controversial Keystone XL pipeline. For now, all of those timeouts and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. A new study says that by the end of this century, the Persian Gulf might be too hot to support human life. So finally, peace in the Middle East. <laughs> oh, thank Allah. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, big, big story, I think, as we go to air today. TransCanada says, uh, never mind about that whole Keystone XL pipeline. (laughs) Yep. TransCanada, the owner of the controversial proposed Keystone XL pipeline, has requested the U.S. State Department to suspend its application for a cross-border permit. TransCanada says the pipeline route is undergoing a new state review in Nebraska. But environmental groups suggest the move is actually an attempt to prevent President Obama from rejecting it. No application, no rejection. Of course, if Hillary Clinton wins in 2016, she has already said she would reject it. So they're gambling, they're hoping, they're praying that a Republican wins in 2016, I guess. That's apparently it. TransCanada did leave open the option of trying again after the 2016 election. And yes, all of the 2016 Republican candidates support the pipeline. I'm glad they note they are trying to work out something with Nebraska concerning the route because it gives me the opportunity to mention that the whole reason this thing has been delayed so long in the first place is because Nebraska Republicans rejected the original route for that Keystone XL pipeline. Another question is whether ongoing eminent domain lawsuits from landowners in Nebraska whose property has been seized for the pipeline will be allowed to go through. 
Speaking of elections, Election Day 2016 is now one year away. The Democratic presidential primary is also now down to three candidates. Harvard Law professor Lawrence Lessig, who focused on campaign finance reform as the linchpin to solving major challenges like climate change, dropped out of the race on Monday. Unlike in the Republican Party, all of the Democratic candidates accept climate science and only differ on how to address it. Meanwhile, Democratic frontrunner Hillary Clinton now says she supports the idea of a Justice Department investigation into oil giant Exxon after new revelations that Exxon deliberately misled the public and funded groups to deny the global scientific consensus on dangerous climate change. Clinton's remarks come two weeks after fellow Democratic candidates Senator Bernie Sanders and former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley already announced their support. And they also come only after she was asked about it. She did not go go out of her way to make that statement that she'd like to see Exxon investigated. It was sort of done uh, in a hallway off stage during a campaign event. In other news, the year 2015 has already smashed the record for the highest number of Category 4 and 5 storms ever recorded. And now in the Middle East, the nation of Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula is seeing its first ever hurricane on record. According to CNN meteorologist Tom Sater, Cyclone Shapala could dump as much as eight years of rain in two days on the arid nation. This is going to drop several years worth of rainfall which is going to cause massive debris flows and flash flooding this is a big big deal here you just don't see this kind of rain in this area something unprecedented we haven't seen in this part of the world oh it's just a coincidence nothing to worry about climate changing what are you talking about and just want to note for the record like hurricane patricia in the pacific a few weeks ago cyclone chapala also intensified with similar record speed yemen is a nation already suffering a major humanitarian crisis stemming from years of violent conflict and Cyclone Chapala will not help. In the U.S., the same record warm ocean temperatures are blamed for the collapse of Maine's commercial cod fishing industry. Despite new stringent catch limits, scientists say the rapid warming of ocean waters off the coast of New England has contributed to the collapse of the fishery. Fishery managers say they did not expect the ocean to warm so quickly or disrupt cod numbers so fast, and thus their catch limit quotas allowed too much cod to be taken this year. Finally, good news and bad news in Antarctica. Antarctica is experiencing a net gain of ice for now. According to NASA, snow is accumulating on the middle of the continent at a faster rate than the ice is melting away around its edges. The scientists say the good news is that means Antarctica isn't adding to rising sea levels. But the bad news is that means the current rise in sea levels isn't from Antarctica which means it's coming from somewhere they haven't accounted for yet. Outer space? Probably not. Damn. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. You're as cold as ice. You're willing to sacrifice our love. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a word, Desi Doyan, about that uh, Antarctica study. That's from, Na- from yes, NASA? Yes, that's from NASA. All right. Our, our friend uh, Dredd over at bradblog.com, a commenter over there who has his own blog, Dread Blog, says, beware of that report. He says it's a contrarian report. 
Yes, and it's really interesting, uh, the, uh, the the information that he's put together. I recommend going to bradblog.com to the entry for today and looking up what he has to say about it. I mean, basically, the contrarian part of this study is that it differs from what the study put out by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their the report. The UN's IPCC. Yes, the UN's IPCC put out a report that uh, that says that net loss from Antarctica, you know, that we're, that we're heading for net loss of ice in Antarctica, and this would be an outlier study, perhaps. One study never does rewrite all of the scientific evidence in one area. I just find it very intriguing, and of course this doesn't have any impact whatsoever on global warming. Well, he says uh, that, that this study, as as you say is an outlier and but it's against the scientific consensus so uh we'll put up a link uh to that report at bradblog.com uh, to dreads uh report that uh, responds to that uh but uh, more importantly uh for now uh keystone xl huge story was just breaking as we were putting together our latest green news report um and, and, of course, we don't have a lot of time in six minutes. Uh, I think we need to give more uh, credit, any credit, we didn't have time in the report, to the activists. To yes. the activists who are fighting like hell to to even make Keystone XL an issue in the first place for so many years. Yeah, you have to give credit to Bill McKibben of 350.org, the founder. Uh, mm-hmm. He was the main force behind the the mass protests that we saw across the country the from, protests the arrests at you know at the white house that everywhere else yes and i think that made a huge difference in bringing the issue to public attention and then bringing public attention to bear on on criticizing this this stupid project i remember when you brought it into a green news report years ago and i thought what well, keystone xl what the hell is that now it's a household name which is amazing the republicans ended up politicizing it uh, uh, partisan, making it a partisan issue, which is rather incredible. A lot of this, or how much, I should say, has to do with, as you see it, with the uh, new Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who says he's not against the pipeline, but he's not going to go to the mat uh, fighting for it for Canada. And uh, the Alberta, uh, 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 new new premier in Alberta, Canada, Rachel Notley, Alberta is where the tar sands are. She said, hey, we got to move away from this fossil fuel stuff. How much of that do you think had to do with Keystone saying, you know what, let's lay with TransCanada saying, let's lay low for a while? Um, You know, I I think actually that that had a slight amount of influence to me. uh, What really happened, according to the energy reporters that that follow TransCanada, was that, you know, when they're talking to people, they said it seems like TransCanada saw the writing on the wall. All three of the Democratic presidential candidates came out against uh, approving Keystone right. XL, Obama was clearly seems to clearly be leaning toward rejecting uh, Keystone XL. So it's it's almost like, hey, if we stop it now, if we suspend the application now, maybe we can wait it out in the hopes that a Republican, a Republican will, will get elected because all the Republicans have come out in support of it. And you know, it's amazing that it was ever made a partisan issue. I mentioned during our report that the original holdup was with Republicans in Nebraska. The ne- Republican state legislature up there and the Republican governor who said, no, uh, it's too dangerous yeah, going this, through the route that it's route, currently going through. Yeah, the route crossed the uh, sensitive Sand Hills region where uh, that, that sits right above the Ogallala Aquifer from which most Nebraska farmers get their water. A spill from the tar sands there would be likely catastrophic. And it's also amazing that it's political and partisan because 
of all the eminent domain involved with it. And eminent domain, you know, where the government comes in and says, no, we're taking this land and giving it to this, to, to this particular company use, to make foreign profits. To a foreign from, company. Yeah. But this is something, eminent domain is something that Fox News has been pretending to be furious about for years. Until it came to Keystone XL, and then it's fine. We didn't notice it. What what eminent domain? Yeah, it's a, it's it's a height of hypocrisy. But what else do you expect, really? And and now I guess uh, well, there's two two points. Uh, one, Obama could still reject this thing. This uh, what they've done. What uh, TransCanada has done is said. Hey, uh, we'd like to we'd like you to stop reviewing our our application until it goes through right. in Nebraska until they study the route and they decide if they're going to approve it and then maybe then the State Department will can look at it. Yeah, that's that's what they're trying to do. And Barack Obama could say, you know what? We have spent millions reviewing your stupid pipeline. It's not in no, the national interest. We're not going to suspend our review. We are going to reject your application. So he doesn't have to. Uh, go along with their suspension of the uh, the process. He could say, no, nope, we're done, and it's not, as you say, not in the national interest, so we don't want it. They'll still be able to reapply, I suspect, under a Republican president if they want, but it does make it just a little bit more difficult if Obama rejects it anyway. Well, especially with prices being oil prices being so low right now, because right now the tar sands are flailing and companies that invested in the tar sands are flailing. It may not be worth TransCanada's time and money to try again with a different route and go through the entire process. This was, you know, seven years and billions of dollars, apparently. It's an unlikely win, I think, so far for the good guys in this case. It seems like the good guys never win this. But you know what? I guess it tells you activists out there, organize, get your stuff together uh, and fight the good fight. And maybe just maybe you'll win against the most powerful interests in the world. That's two wins against Shell in Alaska. Yeah. Now, for and against, Antarctic drilling. Yeah. For Antarctic, for Arctic drilling. Arctic drilling. And for TransCanada, Kia, uh, the Keystone XL. Yeah. You go, activists. And by the way, you activists up there in Canada, you ain't done yet uh, because now the fight moves to this Energy East pipeline, which is a great big uh, pipeline that was going to ship dirty tar sands instead of down uh, through the U.S. is going to ship it all the way east across Canada. So that fight at least still continues. But uh, this is good news, at least for activists, uh, you know. Organize and get the job done. You can do it. You can take on the most powerful interests in the whole wide world that ever existed, and you can win. There you go. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we hope you give us a five-star review and say a few kind words to make it a little bit easier for other people to find the Bradcast as well. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and to Steve Graytack of justiceatstake.org. And, of course, our thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. Greatly appreciate it. I uh, hope you enjoyed yourself. If you did or if you didn't, you can let us know about it. Drop us email. We are bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. All right, that's it. We'll be back with you same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey,